Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. I speak today to Alex Edmonds, Professor of Finance at London Business School. He spoke to us a few weeks ago about his book, Grow the Pie, uh, that went down extremely well. So we've invited him back to talk about confirmation bias. Now that's something that can affect our decision-making every day in life from politics, healthcare, racism, money. Today we're going to focus on the money component. Can we work out how to be better investors? Can we avoid making the same mistakes that we make over and over because of our own confirmation bias? Alex talks us through some techniques, some thoughts about how we can do that and hopefully allow us to make a bit more money. Enjoy the podcast. Alex, how are you doing? Good, thanks, Matt. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me back. Well, fantastic to have you back. You're, the, the last conversation we had went down extremely well. And, uh, you know, um, grow the pie. I mean, how are book sales? I need to know. Well, I don't know the actual number, but I can see in terms of the, the, the charts and the reception. So it has been positive. And I think sales is one thing, but I know there's some global investors who have bought it for their investment team and are having internal meetings to discuss how they're going to change the investment strategy based on that. So what's great is that if it can change the way that investors do things, recognizing that purpose is not just fluffy or a luxury, but something which is consistent with long-term returns, then I think I've achieved the aim. Okay, beautiful. Actually, and uh, by the way, many thanks from our Crux Investor Club members, um, some of whom were, were given the book uh, as a thank you. Lots of positive feedback from that. Um, you know, It's a real eye-opener, the way people should approach uh, life and think about business. So thank you for that. Um, but today we're going to talk about something which I've been dying to talk about since I've uh, since we started this Crux Investor platform up, which is confirmation bias. We all have biases every day. We're all guilty of it, whether it be politics, health, racism. I think sort of topical recently, and also finance, which is you know where I'd like to come at it from. Because, um, but I'm interested in talking to you about it because I watched a TED talk of yours from about two three years ago, uh, admittedly, but. It was brilliant. Why did you first get attracted to the topic, if I may ask? Thanks, Matt, because you might be surprised, like if you're invited to give a TED talk, why don't I flog one of my own papers or speak about finance or investing? Why did I speak about confirmation bias? It was due to a lot of practical involvement that I had. So since moving back to the UK seven years ago, I've been trying to engage with practitioners and policymakers on how to embed purpose in business. And if I said something that they would agree with, so if I provided some evidence that they like, they would say, oh, you are the best professor in the world. You've got such rigorous evidence. And I wouldn't go that far, certainly not even about myself. But then if I gave some evidence which contradicted their viewpoint, they would say, you're just an academic with no practical experience. This is just uh, an academic study. And so people's reaction to the same person, me, I'm the same in both conversations, would be hugely dependent upon what evidence I would give, if it confirmed their viewpoint, then they would latch onto it. And if it contradicted their viewpoint, then they'd be resistant to that. And that's the idea of confirmation bias, is that we will only latch onto evidence that confirms what we would like to be true. It's quite interesting. Well, one of the things that you, uh, you pointed out was that if someone walks into a discussion, a conversation about a topic where they have not preformed an idea they're going to be a lot easier to persuade because it's the first time I've heard the, the data uh, or, or the argument uh, for that topic. But if they're walking in 
knowing something, right or wrong, you're going to have a very tough time trying to convert them to your way of thinking if, if, if those two things don't align to start with. Why is that? That's right. Um, and so there's a quote by Leo Tolstoy, which I think goes, the most difficult subjects can be explained to the most slow-witted man if he has not formed an idea already. But the simplest thing cannot be explained to the most intelligent man if he is firmly and persuaded that he knows already. So we come to these issues with a not with a blank sheet of paper, but with some prior belief. And there's actually some psychological studies which look at what happens in the brain when you're presented with some evidence that you don't like. So what they did is they put people in these MRI scans and they said to them of certain statements which were non-political. Let's say Thomas Edison invented the light bulb and then they would come up with some contradictory evidence. And no part of the brain really lights up because those are not political ideas. But when they have a political statement, maybe something like about abortion or climate change, and then there's a contradictory piece of evidence, the part of the brain that lights up is the amygdala. So that's the same part of the brain which induces a fight or flight response when a tiger is chasing you. So basically what this means is that we react to contradictory evidence in the same way that we react to a tiger attack. We feel that our belief system is under attack and we might not even listen to the other argument. The wheels are spinning in our head thinking about how we're going to reply to it rather than actually listening and then replying. Okay. I want to kind of help people with a, a real-life example of where perhaps we could pro- we could probably eat more easily understand before moving into um, maybe you know the finance side of things. So there was an example of a young Australian lady about well maybe four years ago, and she she kind of created well if I tell the story because I don't want to I don't want to bias it by <laughs> by getting some of the facts wrong. So why don't you start with that story and where it went to? Yeah, so this was the start of my TED talk, What to Trust in a Post-Truth World. It was about Belle Gibson, who was an Australian who um, claimed that she had cancer and she tried radiotherapy and chemotherapy. This had no effect. So instead, she tried diet and exercise and um, ditching meat for fruit and vegetables, and she made a complete recovery. And so that story went viral. And why did it? because of confirmation bias it confirmed what people would like to be true that if you can just set your mind to it if you have willpower you can defeat even the most serious illness and like we tell kids when they're young you can do anything that you put your mind to so that's something which accords with people's psyche is if indeed you are just mentally strong then you can achieve anything. And I'm somebody who has given a lot of talks on on mental strength. And so maybe I would have liked to believe it. But what actually turned out was that the lady never had cancer to begin with. People believed her story without ever checking whether it was true. And indeed, they they were focusing on just healthy eating, which, which is obviously useful in and of itself. But if it leads to you thinking, let me reject science and not even bother to go for chemotherapy and radiotherapy, then it can lead to problems. So I, I, what I thought was fascinating about that was, and you used the phrase there, they would like it to be true because in somehow, some way, the world's a better place because that's, that, that is a possibility. And again, I don't know if that comes back to our mortality or... You know, each of us, each of us have our own thoughts on that. But um, the interesting thing was, it was one story, one story, and it becomes true. And as a, you know, as a, as a professor, as a, you know, 
financial, financial uh, with a fin- your financial background and your scientific background, you study many, many data points before forming an opinion. But even that's not enough for you. Yeah, that's that's right. Because even if you have, you might think, well, the the, the antidote to anecdote, sorry, that's a bit of a tongue twister, is evidence. What you have loads and loads of of of, of data points, but even data is not evidence. So why? What's the difference? Is that data is a collection of facts, but evidence is data that supports a particular conclusion. And that means that there's, we need to disentangle correlation from causation. So that's particularly related to, to investing, and in particular the, the topic we discussed last time on responsible business, is that we found lots of data finding a correlation between purposefulness and long-term profit. We might think, well, it's purpose that causes profit, but in fact it might be the other way around. You need to be profitable first and then you can spend money on purpose. But because we like to live in a world in which the good companies do well, we might be predisposed to interpreting that data as causation from purpose to profit, even if the alternative is is equally plausible just because of our biases. And again, it's another interesting point. I mean, it's a fascinating, it's a big topic here, but you know, Bell's story went viral globally. I mean, it just was clearly what everyone wanted to hear. It was a, you know, almost fairy tale type uh, reception to it um, but the I thought the interesting thing was people sent information out without any validation without checking without any kind of knowledge as to whether or, or thought as to whether or not it could or couldn't be true it was just forwarded out there so social media has a lot to answer for in, in a way or the way that people use social media has a lot to answer for um, I mean what, what are your views on the way that people unthinkingly spread uh, whether it be rumors stories is what i call in, in business i in business or investing i call it pub talk people make decisions based on one bit of information from someone who's not qualified uh, or a bit of information which they've not verified i mean do, do you think that is damaging in the world of, of investing is i mean does it cause a lot of problems I think it definitely does. And so I think we need to be extremely careful about what we share. So there's many people, including some of my friends who respect, who I respect, who will post something on Facebook or WhatsApp. They're saying, oh, I'm just putting it out there. Or they'll say, oh, it's free speech. Or I'm putting out the information in case anyone else wants to use it. So they view information as being like freely disposable. So let's say I buy something and it gets delivered to me and there's a free gift in it. I could always throw that free gift away if I don't like it. But that's not the case with information, is that information can change your viewpoint and it can be a bit like the virus. For example, if you say, ah, there's this possibility that uh, coronavirus was um, created by 5G, right? That did lead to people destroying 5G masks. Or there was the, the movie or the documentary Plandemic Right, and people said, oh, let me just share this to put it out there as being an alternative viewpoint. Now, I'm somebody who certainly uh, likes to see a diversity of viewpoints, but only if those diversity of viewpoints are based on, on evidence, because if not, you are spreading misinformation. And there are people who are predisposed to believe in conspiracies. They, for good reason, might be distrusting of institutions and government. But the concern here is that if you give to somebody who's predisposed to mistrust institutions, even for good reason, some sort of poorly evidenced um, 
conspiracy theory, they might latch onto this and that might then be shared and, and, and be more wide. Then you mentioned in particular, Matt, in terms of the investing space. So there are predisposed views on investing. So there's many people, as I mentioned, who would love to believe that ethical companies perform better. And therefore, there have been people who've put out this idea that ESG investing always works. So Hargreaves Lansdowne, that's the broker that I have been with for 20 years, so I personally like them. But they put out in an email to all clients, study after study shows that ESG investing outperforms. Or David Blood and Al Gore wrote in the Wall Street Journal, voluminous research finds that ESG always pays off. But if that is not the case, and the evidence we discussed last time shows it's much more nuanced, that could incorrectly drive people to put their pensions, their future financial security, into these ESG funds, which are typically more expensive than the average fund because they need to do the ESG screening. But I guess if, if sentiment says, or people follow what is written, I mean, it's an old adage. It's in, if it's in print, it must be true. And of course... I think it was done somewhat ironically, said somewhat ironically. Um, and it's the true with the social media now and, you know, online and, you know, the, the digital world uh, or arena in which we all play. It drives sentiment. And if, if enough sentiment is driven that way, something does, that sometimes does affect the truthfulness of, of the outcome. And, and sorry, but let me be clear what I mean there. Saying, it, sentiment can change outcomes, whether it's based on a truth or a falsehood. And that, that concerns me. And, and I had a broker the other day actually say that we were discussing a company, which we, which we um, won't name names, but you know, this, this company has uh, a, you know, got extremely high market cap. It's been driven there by massive promotional activity. And it's well known in the market, in, in insiders, that it is just based on smoke and mirrors. But there's enough groundswell of followers who believe what is being said so therefore the company is doing well in terms of the market cap it hasn't produced anything underground but it's doing well as far as the market market's concerned if you're basing it on um, market cap and share price so doesn't truth sometimes gets lost in the mix here doesn't it yeah, because it can be self-fulfilling, at least for some part of the time, is that you can indeed have companies which are not founded on March. But if there's indeed enough hype and it confirms what people would like to be true, then it can lead to the stock price being inflated. So there are us, the blood products company, for example, that was a case in which people did believe it. And um, while it did end up in tears, I, I think the founder might have still been able to cash out and get quite wealthy from that situation. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is the world we inhabit. Um, well, let's start, let's kind of pick up on you know how do we help people maybe stop and think and breathe a little bit before they make decisions. And as we said, it's really hard if you're starting from a cognitive bias of your own. If you if you're in a position where you have a belief system, it's hard to move and change yourself, let alone someone else try and do that on your behalf. So have you any recommendations that perhaps um, how we should adjust our behavior? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about two things. So the first is to, to actively see dissenting viewpoints. So to recognize that on most issues, right, there is no, it's, there's no clear answer. Many of them are balanced. So um, when there was the Brexit referendum, I was a strong Remainer. 
I would have loved to believe that everybody who supported Brexit was racist or uninformed and xenophobic, but I wanted to give them more credit. And so what I did is I, I went to listen to some economists who are supporting Brexit and see what they had to say. And then on my blog, I not only posted the case for Remain, but I also posted the case for Brexit, which those people with different viewpoints had had conveyed to me to show, well, there was another counterpoint to this. And relatedly, we should be very wary of any influence or even any professor who says there is clear evidence that, that or study after study shows that, because for most things, there is a, a nuance and there's, there's two point, points of view. But unfortunately, in a world of Twitter where you only have 280 characters, it's much easier to say something extreme without a qualifier than to say something which is more nuanced. So to be wary of anything which claims universality or clear proof. So that's one point. The second is to put particular attention, if it's research, to research published in the top academic peer-reviewed journals. So what is peer review? It's when you do a study, in order to be published, the methodology must be scrutinized by some of the world's leading scholars, so maybe other people at Harvard or Stanford, and that makes sure that the methodology is watertight. And there is a list, for example, in our field of business, in the Financial Times, they have the list of the top 50 journals, which shows you the ones that are most reliable. And at the moment, we typically will latch into a study regardless of where it's published, what we're just going to say, well, do we like it or not, rather than drawing particularly from the ones in the top journals. Now, clearly that's not everything. It's the peer review process is not perfect. Sometimes mistakes are made, but it's better to go with a study which has been checked rigorously rather than one that has not. It's, I mean, th those are two really interesting points, actually, because, um, again, just to just apply that to our uh, environment here is... With, with the first one, which is basically seek, seek out other viewpoints. And we, we quite often get criticized for inviting people on shows and daring to talk to them because it doesn't match the viewer's uh, viewpoint of, of the world, whether it be a commodity on, on, on gold or otherwise. And we're, we are yeah, slightly admonished for it, uh, for daring to put someone with that kind of view on the show. And my, my view is um, I want to hear all viewpoints and then I'm because I've got the confidence in my own ability to make my own mind up at the end of it. So I think there is, I, think, I agree with you, there's real value in listening to all sides because you can always get something uh, from those conversations. And I think your, your second point with regards to listen to experts, you know, you know, speak to whether it be, you know, whether it be peer to peer or otherwise, that's a little bit harder for me to wrap my head around because you can read, um, different publications from equally intelligent individuals, as you just referred to, the Brexit, polarizing. Very intelligent people on either side using different data points to come up with a different conclusion. So as an investor, it becomes a little bit harder for me to say apply that, because I, I can, depending on what I'm reading, the, the author will have a different business model to you. They'll have a different experience to you. They'll have different... Um, outcomes or desires of different outcomes from you. So that becomes a little bit harder. I mean, if you, I mean, you've come from a financial background. How, how do you recommend people go about, again, researching or diligencing for investment decisions? 
I think it is. I acknowledge it is harder, but I, I think that unfortunately that's not something we we can't shy away from because in reality most investment decisions are not no-brainers. They are not slam dunks. There will be um, uh, strengths and weaknesses. So one example I give from an investment perspective is uh, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund is one of the most sophisticated investors that, that I deal with. I'm not going to speak about specific stocks, but their general policies is they have ideas for what they think good looks like in terms of board structure, in terms of pay structure. So this, they release some position papers saying what they're going to try to agitate for in terms of changes in boards or pay at companies they hold. And they'll come up with a position and at the end they'll put arguments for the position and arguments against that position. And then that gives me more confidence that actually they reach that position by weighing up the evidence in both sides rather than just having a blinkered view and then not even considering the other side. And then how do they get the evidence on both sides is they'll look at papers in the top journals and there'll be some papers in the top journals finding some advantages of, say, let's say, long-term equity pay and others finding some disadvantages. And they will put both advantages and disadvantages, but make sure that both the pros and cons have been correctly evidenced and are rigorous. I mean, okay, we, we, we can do that. It, it, um, again, it seems difficult. Again, it seems quite difficult then to identify, you know, right from wrong or you know, correct decision from wrong decision. And I know you, you use the word several times nuanced and, and I appreciate a lot of decision making and thought process is nuanced. Does it come back to actually understanding what you want your outcomes to be? Um, rather than focus on the journey there? Is that, is that, would that be something that investors should consider? Um, so maybe I'm misinterpreting what you mean by focusing on what your outcomes, you want the outcomes to be, because that, to me, feels like a little danger of confirmation bias. If you sort of know what you want the answer to be, then if you justify it after the fact, then, then you're not really listening to evidence. So when I did my old job at Morgan Stanley, um, you often think, oh, how much should we pay for this company? Now, from first principles, you do an, an analysis, and you see what the model says, but instead they would say, well, how much is the client willing to pay? And then you'd back out some valuation that, that, that justifies that, but then you're not actually providing true advice. So I, I would try to look at the first principles approach instead. Right, okay. I, th- I think what I was getting at was, um, the point of investing is about making money, right? You know, it's, and we all should all look after ourselves. You know, that that's it. There's, there's, of course, there's some sort of herd mentality around different theories and theses and so forth. But you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's your bank, it's your money, your bank account, you know, and and your future, your family, etc. So what what I was really mean about outcomes is know know what you want to try and achieve at the end of this, um, rather than focus on the, the, the journey there. And by the journey there, I mean is, you know, how, how you go about achieving your desired outcome, which is presumably to make money. Um, you've got to be careful about that, you know, because I think sometimes people latch on to experts, one expert or one individual or one thought, and they don't evolve and change on the way through to the end point, which is, well, how, you know, making money. I think that that's that's a kind of something I see a lot, and it, and it um, and the, and the, and because they do that, that journey there can be very distracting. People forget to cash out. People forget to make money. They they fall in love with the company or the CEO or the promise or the or the thesis, when the reality is none of those things matter, because you're here to make money. 
Um, I see what you're saying, but I would say that the journey does matter because you want to avoid exactly the errors that you're suggesting, which is, oh, you might fall in love with a company because of a CEO not knowing that he or she might be past their prime or not knowing that actually the business world has changed and so their skills might not be relevant for right now. So the journey does matter, but the journey matters in that you shouldn't be um, too, too caught up in some old viewpoint and be willing to, to, to change your view. So on the journey, we should be open to taking a different route to what we originally intended because as i agree with you we know where the where, where the end point is but don't think of a journey to start with and then follow that regardless of what roadblocks you see along the way and be willing to be flexible in that journey do you think people can change leopard can never change its spots say some people say so, but can people change their confirmation biases how how much can they change? You know, can they go volta fast and say, I, I'm now a, I've got a new view on life, certainly in terms of investing? Or do you think these prejudices, prejudices stay with you because it, they're hard to get rid of? I think they can change. And why do I think this? I try to base the thought on evidence. Is there's now a lot of research on, on neuroplasticity, so that the idea that the brain can change. We often think the brain is formed when you're a child, and so if you've got particular sort of maybe beliefs for how you brought up, you're stuck with them. But actually, the brain can change a lot as, as an adult. And indeed, if people are willing to hear the other viewpoint, then there's studies which show, well, the amygdala lights up less if you hear something you disagree with, because now that's part of what you're used to is hearing dissenting views. So, so just like in our lives, you probably know people who are angry people who fly off the handle at some small thing and some more tolerant people who are um, willing to, to, to put up with stressful situations. Right, they've learned that tolerance, so they've learned that lack of tolerance. And similarly, you can learn tolerance to different viewpoints if you're actually thinking about, well, let me try to read the other viewpoint of an argument. Maybe the first time you do this, it seems painful and you want to shut it off. But I do think it's something that you can learn just like um, neuroplasticity studies have shown that other parts of the brain can change. That's, I mean, that's, that's a lovely thought. It, it, and I mean, tell me a bit more about that. It, it, what, what sort of things were you, was that being applied to? You know, because that suggests there needs to be a conversation, there needs to be a dialogue that goes on and it should be over time. Um, there's no kind of quick fix to this. And you know, that also says to me that social media is, is never going to be able to uh, make a difference. Well, so what some of the neuroplasticity studies that I have focused on more is some which looks at, look at attention and focus. So one thing that I'm really um, interested in is is focused rather than digital distractions. They're one of the other consequences we have on social media. And what it shows is that if, if people are always multitasking, then the brain acts differently. So certain neural pathways are blocked and others form, meaning that we're addicted to checking our email the whole time. Um, whereas if you learn to focus, right, then you develop your mental, quotes, muscle in a way that you're actually able to concentrate. It's the same way that like, if you're doing a plank, right, a forearm plank, Right. After a while, the more you do that, the more your physical muscles will develop so that you can hold that plank for longer. And similarly, the muscle of concentration can develop in such a way that we can work at, uh, at our, our um, investment thesis without being distracted by email. And that the fact that the brain can develop in something like the ability to focus rather than be distracted, that same idea um, applies itself to the fact that we can learn to hold different viewpoints rather than being offended by them. That's, yeah, I think that's, I think that's interesting. It, 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 in terms of application here, it's a line we use quite often is do your homework. It's great having the education, 
you can be the smartest guy in the room, but if you don't do your homework, if you don't read more, if you don't try and discover more on the topic about which you're about to throw money at, um, it's, not, it's going to be much harder for you. You're not likely to make the right decision. One of my nerdy hobbies when I was young, I used to play chess for the England junior chess team. And, and there was like this famous grandmaster who came up with this phrase, it's not enough to be a good player. You need also to play well. And I think that makes a lot of uh, that makes a lot of sense because, as you're saying with an investor, it's not enough just to be smart and be skilled, but you actually need to invest well, and that involves it being willing to look at different viewpoints and to make sure that you're basing it on on, on the best evidence. And sort of this chess player, grandmaster said it in that okay, you can be a great player, but you can make impetuous moves sometimes without thinking. But I think there's this important difference of being sort of skills intellectually and actually putting it into practice. Is there room for emotion in investing? Well, there is definitely room, but the question is, should there be room? And I think um, some of the good investors are the ones who who don't get emotional. So actually, the very first study that I did um, in my PhD at MIT was not on responsible business. Maybe this is a topic for for another episode, but I, I show that when a country gets knocked out of the World Cup, the stock market falls significantly the next day. Why? <laughs> because it affects people's psychology. So why did I do, do this crazy study at MIT? Is because I wanted to show that markets are not efficient. Right? There's so many people who believe in the efficient markets hypothesis. Many things that affect emotion, they also affect fundamentals. So I couldn't look at a plane crash, even though that makes people unhappy, because it really has economic effects. So I looked at this crazy idea of football results, because that doesn't really affect a company's GDP, country's GDP, other than if you're in the beer industry or something. But I showed that that has large effects. So emotions, even the emotions of rational traders do drive the markets. But I think some of the most successful investors, they're typically contrarian. So they buy um, some um, beaten up companies um, after after they've gone down, or they might short tech companies in, in, in a bubble. And so they are able to take the emotion away. So if you go to that poem, If by Rudyard Kipling, Kipling if you can keep your head when all around you are losing theirs, I think to be able to distance yourself away from the emotion is an important part of an investor. Do you think you could construct the perfect mindset of an investor? Because it intrigues me, um, actually, what type of person does an investor need to be? The ultimate, you know, you, you, you get a lot of fund managers trying to build, you know, the perfect scenarios, but is there a such thing as a perfect investor? Can you be an angry investor? Can you be a happy investor? You know, because um, I, I, I think emotion sometimes destroys value. Um, I, I've seen it quite often in a professional setting and I've seen it with, within a sort of retail setting as well. And I just wonder if there's a place you need to get to mentally before you start placing what are, are otherwise bets. I asked this when I, I used to be at Morgan Stanley, in, initially in investment banking, but then on the trading floor in New York City, I asked um, one of the CMDs what makes a great investor. And he said, perhaps tongue in cheek, no short term memory, um, so, or a very short term memory. And what he meant by that, right, it is often like investors will. Will, will throw good money after bad. If indeed the stock has gone up recently, right, it's a bubble, they'll try to jump on that bandwagon and base their decisions on this recent performance. Or sometimes investors will have in mind their purchase price. So there's something known as the disposition effect, where investors are very unwilling to sell at a loss. Now, we know that as investors, 
tax considerations aside, the only thing that should determine whether we sell or, or not is the value of the stock, well, what we view the value is, compared to the price. Really, the purchase price that we paid at, that's a bygone, that's a sunk cost, but many investors will always have this in mind when they make these decisions, even though it's not relevant. So that's why um, he was claiming no short-term memory or a very short-term memory, because it means that the only things that affect our decisions are the here and now, the information about the stock right now, and also the current price that the market is, is charging for it. It's, it's a fascinating uh, topic, really, because the, you know, if, if you look at um, the big banks, they invest a lot of money in you know, this algorithmic trading, obviously. I also think that fundamentals include things like the emotional connection to the management team. Do you, as a human being, believe that that human being is capable of delivering on what they say? Are they being honest? And I'm not sure... Computers can always factor that in. So I, I think there's a there's a wide mix of skill sets needed for sure uh, in this kind of crazy investment game in which we're all playing. Alex, I think you're right. That's possibly is another topic for another day. It's it's it's, it's beautiful. Um, well, look, thank you very much for your time today. What a, what a what a great great topic. Uh, we've only just touched upon the surface. We'll put a few links to certainly your um, TED talk and some articles that you've written on the subject just so, so people can read around it do your homework um and um we will try and get you back on to talk more about uh, this world of finance that we exist in i appreciate your time today thank you sounds great really enjoyed it matt thanks for having me back thank you for listening if you've enjoyed the interview why not subscribe to cruxcast or our website cruxinvestor.com and of course our youtube channel crux investor plus you can catch us most days on twitter and linkedin We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.